together, you and I are about to embark on a non-linear road trip through popular culture. A subjective history tour chronicling the histories and legacies of the coolest movies and television shows ever made. This season, it's David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker's landmark 1980 parody, Airplane. From the movies and comedians that paved the way for the funniest movie in recorded history, to its contemporaries and the filmmakers it inspired, we're bouncing backwards and forwards through time for a salute to comedy on film and the fine cinematic art of orchestrated anarchy. So come along with me, your wonky yet affable host Ryan Luis Rodriguez, for season two of The Coolness Chronicles, The Shirley Chronicles. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh... Well, we've warned you. Last week, we wrapped up our deep dive into the films of Judd Apatow, and this week we're discussing the heir apparent to the Zucker-Abram-Zucker dynasty, a man named David Wayne, and his directorial debut, Wet Hot American Summer. It's a tale that involves negligent chaperoning, the downsides of shooting spring for summer, an ensemble murderer's row, jettison dark story points, and comedic references to everything from meatballs to sleepaway camp? On with the show! Arts and Farts and Crafts, Wet Hot American Summer. We begin in 1988 at New York University, where an improv comedy troupe is born. That troupe? The State, consisting of 11 members. Kevin Allison, Michael Ian Black, Robert Ben Garant, Todd Hollebeck, Michael Patrick Jan, Carrie Kinney Silver, Thomas Lennon, Joe Latrulio, Ken Marino, Michael Showalter, and David Wayne. Whew. Whew. That's a metric shit ton of brilliant comedic minds. Upon graduating, they eventually land a television series for MTV, producing four seasons over the course of three years. Upon the series' cancellation, the various members team up for various offshoots. For instance, the cult Comedy Central program Viva Variety. In 1997, Showalter and Wayne collaborated on a script for a feature film that would eventually evolve into the film we're discussing today. The script took its influence from several films from the late 70s and early 80s, like Sleepaway Camp, which, in context, makes perfect sense, Little Darlings, again, totally makes sense, Indian Summer, and of course the Rosetta Stone Meatballs. Their intention was to produce a little friends and family picture but as their ambition grew, so did the scope. Upon finishing the script, financing took three years, which is a long time considering that the final budget was only $1.8 million. All that said, on January 23, 2001, Wet Hot American Summer debuted at the Sundance Film Festival. 
Now, before we get to the movie, I want to clear the air. There are few films that I would deem perfect, but Wet Hot American Summer fits the bill. I discovered it in my junior year of high school, and upon reading Owen Gleiberman's review in Entertainment Weekly, my Bible at the time, which garnered the rare A rating, it became like the Holy Grail. I had never watched The State, I didn't have cable at the time, so I had no frame of reference as to the makers of the film. I had also just turned 17, which meant my parents could no longer safeguard me from R-rated material, and I ordered the film from Netflix. Aw oh, man, remember when Netflix was a DVD service instead of a content crapper? <sighs> Good times. Anyway, I watched it and my mind was absolutely blown. I became obsessed. Between 2003 and 2005, I may have rewatched it more than any other movie. Same goes for the audio commentary. You could practically call my DVD player the Wet Hot American Machine. As such, I know everything there is to know about the film, so let's dive into it. This summer, take a trip back to 1981 with the special people who made summer camp unforgettable. aren't supposed to be out of your bunks. You're in trouble. The camp director. Four campers are stuck in the ropes course. I meant to tell you about that yesterday. Could you get to it now? The counselors. Wait for me, Abby Bernstein. Wait for me, my darling. Wait, wait, wait. That's when they got my shirt. The kitchen staff. Finish up the taters. I'm gonna go fondle my sweaters. <laughs> Come on, what? You said you were gonna go fondle your sweaters. No, I didn't. The water sports. Sure. The nature hikes. Out! Out! And of course, who can forget the sex, the muggings, the cover-ups, the malaria, the psychotherapy. Hello. And the friendships that last a lifetime. From USA Films and creators of TV's The State. A renegade piece of Skylab heading right for the camp. Oh, my God. It could kill us all. Janine Garofalo, David Hyde Pierce, Paul Rudd, Christopher Maloney, and Molly Shannon. Andy, have you seen my swimming buddy? I was busy. It's your job to make sure kids don't drown. Um, wet, hot American summer. The place? Camp Firewood, a sleepaway summer camp in Maine. The time? August 1981, days before the launch of MTV. The people? An absolutely stacked ensemble, the murderer's row of comedic actors. The 1927 Yankees ain't got shit on this. Camp director Beth, played by Janine Garofalo. Associate astrophysics professor Henry Newman, played by David Hyde Pierce. Beth? I like the new look. Very chic. Thank you, Henry. Please, call me Henry. Okay, Henry it is. Molly Shannon as Gail the Arts and Crafts Coordinator. Chef Jean, a Vietnam veteran with unusual predilections, played by Christopher Maloney. Paul Rudd as Andy, the worst person who has ever lived and a negligent camp counselor indirectly responsible for the deaths of several campers. There's a real mean streak throughout the picture. Marguerite Moreau as Katie, Andy's girlfriend and the object of desire for counselor Gerald Coop Cooperberg played by co-writer Michael Showalter, arguably the protagonist of the film. Ken Marino in a Juan Epstein wig as Victor, a counselor who presents himself as a ladies' man who gets laid constantly, 
only to reveal himself as a fraud with his virginity intact. Joe Latrulio as Neil, a counselor who looks up to Victor's Lothario persona only to become disappointed and disillusioned when the truth is revealed. Michael Ian Black and Bradley Cooper as McKinley and Ben respectively, two counselors in a committed relationship that they keep secret from the camp, at least for the first third of the picture, Zach Orth as JJ, a counselor determined to get McKinley laid, completely oblivious to his romantic interests, A.D. Miles as Gary, Gene's assistant cook and JJ's bosom buddy, Amy Poehler as Susie, the hot-tempered and draconian drama instructor, Marissa Ryan as Abby, a counselor who would have been described at the time as a loose woman who seems to have a sexual relationship with anyone she comes into contact with, and that includes the campers, and Elizabeth Banks as Lindsay, the object of Andy's affection. Did I say affection? That's not really correct. He wants to jump her bones. I don't know the proper word to describe it. I also neglected to mention that all of the counselors are in their mid-twenties to early thirties, despite playing 16-year-olds. Anyway, it's the last day of camp, and we follow all these disparate storylines from morning to evening. Beth becomes romantically entangled with Henry. Henry discovers that a rogue piece of Skylab is projected to hit the camp and destroy it. So he teams up with the science nerds among the assorted campers, whom he describes as the indoor kids. Susie and Ben prepare for the campers' talent show and basically berate anyone that doesn't meet their standards. Andy lets a camper drown, and when another camper witnesses this and threatens to fink on him, he takes the camper to the outskirts and throws him out of a moving car. Sidebar. The original draft of the script, he took any camper that finked on him out to the woods and put a silencer to the back of their heads. Can't imagine why that was changed. It seems like a totally acceptable creative decision. End sidebar. Coop attempts to win the affections of Katie by reinventing himself as Super Coop, which requires a confidence-boosting training montage in which Gene attempts to unlock his inner stud, a montage that slavishly follows the standard set by Rocky III, ending with the same freeze frame, by the way. Gene, who seems to be a little emotionally imbalanced, frequently subconsciously reveals his inner struggles, from fondling his sweaters to smearing mud on his ass, before admitting his predilections to the camp, undergoing a real character arc. Gene is also guided in his exploits by an anthropomorphic can of vegetables, voiced by Archer and Coach McGurk himself, John Benjamin. A can of vegetables with pretty impressive skills. I've never told anyone this before, but I can suck my own dick. Do it. A lot. There. I said it. I was honest. Coop coaches the Camp Firewood baseball team, only to forfeit the big game against the evil Camp Tigerclaw when the campers confess that any potential victory is trite and hackneyed, like a more self-aware version of the Bad News Bears. It's not exactly part of the One Crazy Night subgenre, but perhaps it manifests its own special category, the One Crazy Day. Wet Hot American Summer is an irresistible slice of surreal absurdism, and Wayne and Showalter are obsessed with esoteric jokes. For instance, if you listen to the soundtrack very carefully, you'll notice a sound effect of a pot being smashed, first heard when Beth throws a trowel off screen. That sound effect is then heard when anyone throws anything out of frame. Why? 
because Wayne was sitting in the editing suite and thought it was funny. That's it. There's a scene where the counselors leave the camp for an afternoon in the local town, which begins with everyone playfully eating McDonald's french fries and ending with all the counselors in a drug den strung out on heroin. Then they return to the camp in high spirits as if nothing has happened. Why? Does it serve the story such as it is? No, because Wayne and Showalter were obsessed with pursuing the most illogical thing they could think of. Sidebar. On the DVD, or rather Blu-ray, there is an alternate audio track with extra farts. And I've listened to it in its entirety, and I have to say that it delivers on that premise. There are a lot of farts. End sidebar. And as absurd as everything is, and as mean as the film can be, there is room for sincerity. The aforementioned love affair between McKinley and Ben is revealed during a tender, sensuous sex scene between the two that comes as a real transgressive surprise. And scenes later, they affirm their love for one another in a commitment ceremony officiated by Beth. And it's not played as a joke. There is some humor to the proceedings, but nobody is laughing at the characters. Okay, so let's talk about the making of this movie. Making the movie was no picnic. Because the setting was a real operating camp, the production couldn't film during the summer and were forced to shoot during a wet, cold American spring. It rained 25 out of 28 days, and you can actually see rain in several shots. You can also see the actor's breath in most outdoor scenes. Not only did the crew have to live in the camp's bunks, they had to subsist on a diet of food traditionally served at the camp, a sodium-heavy diet. They also had to walk on planks between bunks because if they stepped foot on the ground, they would sink into the mud. Post-production-wise, this film boasts one of the best soundtracks of the 2000s, beginning with the opening credits track, Jefferson Starship's Jane, and continuing with Loverboy's Turn Me Loose and the song set during the town exploit sequence, Rick Springfield's Love Is Alright Tonight. Sidebar. At one point, I had every one of these tracks, including the title track by Craig Wedron, who also wrote the theme for the state, on a mix CD that I would listen to on my way to and on my way from school. It became this soothing balm for what I would describe as one of the worst periods in my life. This is obviously in the pre-iPod times, and once I actually owned an iPod, a mini, in case you're wondering, you better believe I had a Wet Hot American playlist. And... Sidebar. The film used its limitations to its benefit. Most hilariously, when Victor leaves a bunch of campers stranded during a river rafting excursion, and Neil has to track him down, stealing a motorcycle and pursuing his idol. Because Joe Latrulio was not proficient in motorcycle driving, Wayne accentuates the fact that he's using a stunt double by hiring someone who looks nothing like Latrulio. This double wears an unconvincing wig, and when he reaches the camp and dismounts, for a few seconds you can glimpse him in full, which some unobservant viewers considered to be an accidental continuity error. Why did Wayne do it? Again, because it was funny. The film is also surprisingly restrained. Despite being set in 1981, Wayne and Showalter resisted obvious cultural jokes, avoiding what they called the wedding singer syndrome. And as much as I love that movie, and I do, believe you me, it's all, wow, we're really in the 80s, reruns, Miami Vice, 
Who Shot JR? Flock of Seagulls! The outfits worn by the cast are all from the late 70s, as would be appropriate for 1981, seeing as how decade-defining fashions don't really materialize until a couple of years into a decade. This includes the shortest shorts since Daisy Duke, even on the dudes, or especially on the dudes. The film only grossed around $300,000 at the box office, registering as an official bomb, but in the years since, it has developed into a legit cult phenomenon. It's one of those films that I think would benefit from a series of Rocky Horror Picture Show midnight screenings, where the audience speaks the film's iconic lines in tandem. It's like The Room, only it's actually meant to be funny, as opposed to accidentally reaching comedic status. However, the film was popular enough to warrant two, count them, two separate Netflix miniseries, directed by Wayne and written primarily by Wayne and Showalter, beginning with 2015's First Day of Camp. Despite being set two months before the events of the film, since it was produced 15 years later, it means that actors previously in their late 20s, early 30s, playing 16-year-olds, are now in their late 30s and 40s, which is somewhat less egregious than, say, I don't know, Beverly Hills 90210, but serves as a real source of humor. Throughout the eight episodes, for which the entire cast returned, we receive the origin stories for several characters, most notably Gene and the Can of Vegetables, who both undergo a serious arc across the series. In addition to once again embodying Coop, Showalter also plays President Ronald Reagan, a reference to the fact that in the original film, he also played the talent show MC Alan Shemper, a vaudeville-era stand-up. We also get to know the counselors of the evil camp Tiger Claw, first referenced during the abortive baseball game, including Josh Charles and Kristen Wiig. It's a complicated eight-episode run that involves camp shenanigans and elements of political thrillers, including an appearance from John Hamm as the Falcon, a skilled assassin. The cast is also expanded, including recurring roles for Jason Schwartzman, Ham's fellow madman veteran John Slattery, Michaela Watkins, Lake Bell, Michael Sarah, Randall Park, Weird Al Yankovic, Jordan Peele, and even Chris Pine, if you can believe it. Two years later, Wayne and Showalter continued the story with Ten Years Later, set in August of 1991, as the former counselors reunite for the first time since their momentous summer at Camp Firewood. It doubles down on the political conspiracy angle, yet again involving Showalter as now former President Ronald Reagan, joined by Michael Ian Black as President George Bush, and Wayne as Governor Bill Clinton. The joke obviously lies in the fact that none of these actors resemble their real-life counterparts in the slightest. The majority of the cast from the feature film and some of the cast from the first miniseries return, with the only exception being Bradley Cooper, who couldn't participate due to scheduling conflicts, presumably because he was directing A Star is Born. To work their way around this and keep the character of Ben as part of the ensemble, the in-universe gag is that Ben has gotten a nose job and is now played by Adam Scott, who not only looks nothing like Bradley Cooper, his nose is clearly quite normal. Ten years later officially marks the end of the Wet Hot American franchise. After the release of the original film, Wayne continued directing features, specifically 2006's The Ten, a humorous anthology based around the Ten Commandments, and his biggest hit to date, 
role models, which served as a mini Wet Hot American reunion, including star and co-writer Paul Rudd, co-star Elizabeth Banks, and co-writer Ken Marino. He also directed 2012's Wanderlust, again co-written by Marino and starring Rudd, a film that incorporated so much improvisation and goofing around that the Blu-ray features something dubbed the Bizarro Cut, 79 minutes of digressions and riffs, something that bears more than a passing resemblance to the previously discussed Wake Up Ron Burgundy. Unfortunately, unlike Anchorman, Wanderlust was a flop, grossing only $24 million on a budget of 35. In 2014, Wayne reunited with Showalter to co-write and direct an even more pronounced parody, They Came Together, which we'll be discussing shortly. I won't say when, but I will say it's our series finale. So, two weeks. There, I said it. Two weeks from now, they came together. Are you happy? Showalter also kept himself busy by transitioning into a director, beginning with 2005's affectionate romantic comedy spoof The Baxter, featuring Wet Hot American cast members like Elizabeth Banks, Michael Ian Black, Zach Orth, Paul Rudd, David Wayne, A.D. Miles, and Joe Latrulio, and Ken Marino. He also wrote and directed Sally Field in 2015's Hello, My Name is Doris, and made two films that ended up being nominated for Academy Awards. This includes 2017's The Big Sick, which earned a nod for Best Original Screenplay, and 2021's The Eyes of Tammy Faye which, despite being a qualified box office bomb, took home two Oscars for Best Makeup, Much Deserved, and Best Actress for Jessica Chastain. I was rooting for Penelope Cruz, but I did predict that Chastain would win moments after leaving the theater back in September of 2021. So, that leaves us at a cliffhanger. Wayne and Showalter reuniting for a feature film? What could possibly happen? In time. All in time. Next week, we're shifting gears a bit to discuss an affectionate parody of the highest order, this time centered around the blaxploitation subgenre, a little film called Black Dynamite. Dynamite! Dynamite! Your interest is peaked, isn't it? Stay tuned, friends. Stay tuned. And that is where we end this episode of The Shirley Chronicles. If you're a fan of the show, $5 gets you access to not just early broadcasts of every episode, but countless hours of bonus content and super fun weekly episodes every Friday that spin off from the weekly show exclusively at patreon.com slash coolnesschronicles. But before we take off for the week, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's Ryan's Recommendations. <laughs> at Blockbuster, I was exposed to a bunch of films that I probably wouldn't have actually seen otherwise. Black Dynamite is a big one, Mystery Team is up there, but my recommendation this week was my favorite discovery in five years of video store retail grunt work, and it was a documentary from 2008 called Not Quite Hollywood. This film charts the Ozploitation, Australian genre cinema, through its inception in the late 70s all the way through the late 80s. Cinema that encompassed everything from George Miller's Mad Max to Brian Trenchard Smith's Dead End Drive-In. You get interviews with all those involved, as well as an uncharacteristically enthusiastic Quentin Tarantino. Just kidding, he always sounds a little too amped. Waxing poetic about car porn 
and getting ripped off at your local Grindhouse theater. Just like the films and ethos it covers, this documentary is lewd, crude, and flies in the face of decency and good taste. Which sounds terrific, doesn't it? It was my first real entry point to Australian exploitation, and I gotta say, around the same time, I started a list of movies I needed to see with a sense of urgency, and more than a few of the films covered in this documentary made the cut. Some of them I've seen since, like Richard Franklin's Road Games and Russell Mulcahy's Razorback being chief among them. Most of them I've yet to see, a lack of availability being a major reason, but after watching Not Quite Hollywood about eight or nine times, it's that intensely watchable, I can at least pretend that I know even a little about the subgenre and its twisted delights. Not Quite Hollywood is currently streaming on Amazon Prime, Canopy, Tubi, Plex, Hoopla, Docs, Pluto, and Voodoo. I swear I didn't make any of those up, they're just real stupid names. For more reviews and recommendations, check out my Letterbox page at letterbox.com slash onetrackmind. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy what you hear, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your chosen source, locatable as The Coolness Chronicles, and share it with anyone you can, any way you can. This has been the largest and most fulfilling endeavor I've ever seen to completion, and it would be nice to keep making the show until it just isn't fun anymore. So, I bet I two episodes from now. But then we're rebranding. Don't worry. We still got content for you. This is a 1,000% independent, non-profit podcast, and as such, we are markedly less visible. Every time you guys and gals spread the word, it assures that we can afford to record another day. Have any questions or comments? Have I missed anything so far in this series? Contact me on Twitter, at CoolnessPodRyan, Instagram at The Coolness Chronicles, on Podchaser, or on our Facebook page, and keep on the lookout for updates. Also, check out the other podcast that I co-host, Reels of Justice, where every week we put a movie on trial to determine if it's guilty or innocent of being a bad movie. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you find fine, upstanding, well-groomed podcasts. Special thanks to the amazing Lacey Barker for all of our wonderful artwork, Bill Sherm for all of our wonderful music, and special, special thanks to our equally amazing patrons. Catherine H., Ellen I., Kathleen D., Isabel T., Bobby L., Michael A., Ian C., Ian M., Kitty K., Kelly B., The Vern, Mary M., Bill M., Christopher H., Christopher J., Tracy R., and Jenny R. Until next time, do what you love, don't be a dick, and take care. Dawn, that's the end.